Turn with me today to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Among other places we're going to go. Our children are being let go and set free. I think they already went. I could see them leaving. There we go. All right, they didn't wait for me. That's a good thing. Well, after the stunning lavishness of God's creativity, which we witnessed in Genesis chapter 1, last couple weeks, we now take his turn into Genesis chapter 2. And what Genesis chapter 2 really is, is it's a reflection on the creative masterpiece of God. In essence, it's a reflection on God's creation of mankind, of you and of me, and our neighbors, our friends, our enemies, our people around the world. There's a whole lot in Genesis chapter 2, and so this really feels like it's just skimming the surface. But what I want to try to do is get to an overarching principle that is critically missed when it comes to the idea of creation. When it comes to the idea of flourishing. You see there a number of things in Genesis chapter 2. You see the responsibility given to mankind in the exercise of power, which we talked about last week. The, the image of God is given us for power. Power in ways that produce flourishing. We read in Genesis 2.16 that, that Adam was placed in the garden to work it and take care of it. So mankind is given a job. Mankind is said, told, go to work. He is given a vocation. And Walter Brueggemann described it this way. He said we, our vocation is the purpose we have in serving the purposes of God. Here's a question. What is the purpose of God that you're serving? That's your vocation. Not, not the title on the door, not the name on the paycheck, but what is the purpose of God that you are living out? We are called to this purpose we have in serving the purposes of God. So we see that in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, we see the beautiful formation of the covenant of marriage. Discovering here, we see outlined for us in Genesis 2, God's design for flourishing in marriage between a man and a woman. And we read these words, these powerful words, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, they become one flesh. But there's a principle here, an overarching principle in Genesis 2 that involves all of us. There's more happening than just these things. In fact, what I'm going to share with you today and then again in a couple of weeks is, is this principle that I think impacts not only creation, but also impacts the whole narrative of the Garden of Eden. If you, if you turn back to Genesis chapter 1, to words that we already have seen, they help us see one of the most neglected aspects that are woven into the fabric of being a human being. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we read these words. God speaking says, Let us make mankind in our own image. In our likeness. Let us make mankind. In our image. In our likeness. Now think about it. 
unlike any other aspect of creation, the formation of the image of God in humankind is the creative act of the divine community. God is a community of mutual and equal love in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the mystery of the Trinity. But that means this. Part of being made in the image of God, what it actually means to be human, is a longing for life with others. We're wired that way. From the community that is God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So to be fully human is to be a social being. I don't know if you remember, a couple weeks ago we talked about the desire in every person. From you, Welchel, he said, every person has a relentless drive to experience shalom through right relationships with God, families, communities, creation. That's The opposite of that is the secular vision of well-being, which is an individualized, personalized expectation of well-being, focusing on flourishing for self. But this is a well-being that is always, always relational. So you see, flourishing, if we're truly going to flourish in life, flourishing is plural. It's plural. And that begins with this creator God who wants to relate to and who wants to be with people. Which brings us to these words in Genesis 2. Genesis 2.18. It is not good for the man to be alone. If we've learned anything over the last three years... We've learned that. Andy Crouch says it this way, in the very good world created by a creator God who delights in teeming, there is one thing that was not good. It is not good for the man to be alone. Read the creation narrative. And this is the first time where there's tension coming into the story. There's tension here. This is the one instance when God looks over creation and he declares that something is not the way it's supposed to be. This is the only time classified in this creation narrative as the opposite of good. When man was alone. And that's still true. What was recognized at the start of humanity resonates now. It is not good for man to be alone. We all need someone. And we all need someones. And the larger principle over all of this is, yes, this is intrinsically connected to the idea of the forming of a covenant in marriage between a man and a woman, but it's a larger principle for every one of us, married, single. No matter where you're coming from life. We're all in need of someone and we're all in need of someone's and so this morning we stood this precious adolescent in front of us today.
and she has been wanting to join the church. She has been wanting to be declared publicly with her someones. How great is that? Amen? So what does this have to do with us right now? And what does this have to do with the idea of church? There's so much here. But let's think about this. God made us in his image. And we established last week that we are made as image bearers to bring the image of God to the world. That that's the only plan that God has to bring his image, his likeness to the world is you and me. Well, you see, what that means is this. We cannot image God in the world alone. We need others to do that. The power to love and in loving to create. Crouch says that's the power that hums at the heart of the world. When we love and when we create and when we image God together, that's the power that hums. And when that's pulled out, what do we have? We have things like despotic tyranny. You see, part of the schematic, if you will, of flourishing is community. And that gets to the heart of even what we're doing here today. Any spirituality that claims to be Christian but is not committed to participating in and growing in community is not Christian. We have all benefited in different ways from online community, so to speak. But here's the truth. There is no such thing as online church. I say that to all of us. I say that to you, those of you who at this time need to be viewing. And that's great that we have that tool. But there's no such thing as online church, so to speak. Any spirituality that claims to be Christian and is not participating in and growing in community is not Christian. John Mark Homer wrote these words. We can't follow Jesus alone. Jesus did not have a disciple, singular. He had disciples, plural. The call to follow Jesus was and is a call to join his community on the way. You see, as John Tyson puts it, the church is a beautiful resistance. You heard it in our membership ritual today. The church is a beautiful resistance to the gravitational pull we live in, inward gravitational pull toward consumerism and radical individualism. But community also serves another purpose, not only to fight that, be that beautiful resistance, but there's another purpose. Away from community... The enemy of our souls isolates us and exploits our vulnerabilities, especially in times of disappointment, discouragement, disillusionment, suffering, and hardship. I think some of the most enlightening, amazing, needful words come from 1 Peter 5.8. Look at these words together. Next slide, please. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I don't know, have you ever seen those, those movies? I, I kind of like those, those um, documentaries that will be like talking about 
the lions and their hunting or other kind of animals. And then you see them, they, they take out the antelope and all that stuff. You know how they do that? You ever see how a lion hunts? How a, pa- a pack of lions hunts? They isolate the weakest. They don't go after the crowd. They go after the individual. They don't go after the, the number that has strength. They look, they look, and you watch them. Those, the lions walk around and they look and they determine which one is the weakest. And they isolate that one animal. And that's who they go after. What an intriguing word picture for us. In a couple weeks, we'll live more in the Garden of Eden and we'll look at where all things went wrong. Well, the reason why all things went wrong is because Eve, and eventually Adam, but Eve became isolated. Alone and away from community, when humans are isolated, we are easier to fool, Comer said. So you see, what's the devil's chief strategy? And the devil is a very real personal force in our world. What's the devil's chief strategy? Luca Comer writes, get a person to take a relational step away from God and redefine good and evil for himself, done. Hear that? Get a person to take a relational step away from God. And here in community with one another is part of being in relationship with God. Get someone to take that step away. And then it's easier to help them redefine good and evil for themselves so it works out for their life the way they want their life to be, not necessarily the way we want God to be. And and the devil just goes, done. And something else, this slide's not up there, I just want you to hear it. He goes on to say, it always starts with drifting from community with solid followers of Jesus. It always starts with lowering the priority of being in community. You see, the early church understood that. They, were, they had lions coming after them. They just looked like members of the Roman Empire trying to take them out, trying to actually crucify them, trying to actually destroy them. But this is what they said. The same principle applies. They said, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Do you see the subtle shift? It's a shift of habit. It's a shift of of keeping that habit. God's desire for the people called the church is to not be alone in the daily grind of life, but to find fellow pilgrims in the journey with God in this very real world where hurricanes slam in to those we love, where diagnoses 
meet us and we don't want them. Where sadness grips our hearts and also where joys that are immeasurable meet us and celebrations that we just can't contain to ourselves. There's this place of encountering this all together. Pilgrims and partners who will encourage one another, walking the journey with people over the long haul. And you know in that other pilgrim, that other journey partner, I find strength and wind for myself. Have you ever had a day where you just, you no longer could do it? You didn't have it. Or you weren't sure. Or you were doubting. And then you get a phone call from someone who says, Pastor, I want you to know that this morning the Lord put you on my heart and I've been interceding for you through the day. That doesn't happen when you're in isolation. Or you found yourself seeing someone and it was just the right someone you needed to see when you were coming down the hallway in church. Or maybe you saw them in the store. And I've told this story a million times, but I can't count how many times I've, I've stood in line at the store and all of a sudden I feel someone much smaller than me pulling on my leg. And it's one of the children from our community called NCLC. And they go, hi, Pastor Jeff. <laughs> I love that. And all of a sudden, my spirit has some new wind in the sails. And I find in this community protection for my soul. I find strength and wind in my sails. I find protection for my soul. I find others who promote and encourage my flourishing. 2 Corinthians 13, Paul writes, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. That word encouragement there means the act of building. It's building up, edifying. One who promotes another's growth. Encouragement is a core contribution to flourishing. So no wonder God said from the very beginning, it is not good for us to be alone because we miss out on so much. Flourishing requires community. That's the way we're wired from the very start. What does a flourishing church community look like? Well, we already have a picture of that. In Acts chapter 4, we read these words. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. That's different. <laughs> With great power. Now look what, what's happening. Look what's happening. These people are self-giving. They're united, so they're looking out for one another, looking out for each other's interests. And look what happens. With great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. 
For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it on the, at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, before you look at that and start thinking, well, that's all about them giving away their stuff, that's not what this is about. Flourishing is never intended to be individualized or hoarded or first about material things or the efforts of the people. That's not what this is about. This is what it's about. They were committed to a community that was focused on the resurrection of Jesus, it says. They were focused on the living Christ. Their focus was on Jesus. Jesus was the center of the whole thing. And it says this community had a focus on the resurrection of Jesus where it goes on, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. And because God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, they had light hands on the things of this world. It's a powerful picture. But it also teaches us something. This community is not our idea. You see, that's really important because when, when we have things that are our idea, that means we want to control them. And we want to form them in our image. Not necessarily in the image of another, in this case, God. You see, from the beginning, it's God's idea because he knows that when we do not tether ourselves to others for his purposes, in his power, we place our souls in a perilous position. And it's specifically a community about Jesus and for Jesus. After Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote the book Life Together, six years later he was executed by Adolf Hitler. But there's been no book that probably has written more powerfully and precisely about the meaning of life together than that book, Life Together. I, I need to forewarn you, it's, it's not a book for the faint of heart because it really calls us to biblical life together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer reminds us this. Christian community is not an idea which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. So it does not begin with us, but with the resurrection of Jesus, where God's grace so powerfully works in us all. Jesus is the builder in the life of the church. The church is not an entitlement. It is a gift given by God. And because I am a part of it, you heard me say this to Lizzie, because I am a part of this congregation, this church, the church of Jesus Christ, it is less than ideal. But the goal, my friends, of this community is not the ideal. And when I seek the ideal, I lose the community as a place of God's flourishing. What do I mean by that? Well, let's let Bonhoeffer help us. He writes, those who love their dream of Christian community 
more than they love the Christian community itself, become destroyers of that Christian community. Read those words. Just read them. He says that's true even when intentions are good. He goes on and says this, those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. And they enter the community of Christians with their demands and judge one another and God accordingly. But then he says, it is not we who build, but Christ builds the church. See, this changes that whole piece. We're made in the image of God. Image of God is for power for us to contribute to flourishing. It is not good for us to be alone. And and one of the things we need to see as we reflect back on that idea of image bearers being power is that power equals responsibility. So the question is, what is my responsibility in community? What happens when I am contributing to the fullness of being human. By asking first, how am I contributing to the flourishing of this community? And that includes the community of my family. That includes the community of my workplace. That includes the community of my friendships. That includes the community of my neighborhood. That includes, yes, the community of the church. Why? Because it is not good for the man to be alone. It is not good because without it, we are not fully human and we're not fully Christian. It's not good because someone may be in need of what you have to offer and you may be in need of what someone has to offer. It's not good because maybe you are in a community for not only what you will gain, but what you will give and what you bring to it. It's never been good for man to be alone. But you see, Jesus Christ himself has created a gift whereby we can enter into togetherness the journey of life. Pilgrims. Pilgrims. Finding strength, grace, and even protection in being part of a community. It's not good for men, women, boys and girls and teens to be alone. And it's not good to try to form the church in my image. But it is so very good when it's all about him. And when I become more like him, bearing the image of the self-giving God, to you. 
to my marriage, to my children, to my neighbors, to my friends. Together. James, why don't you come as we prepare for communion? That's why we come to this table. It is time for us to come to the Lord's table. Hear that, please. The Lord's table. It is not your table. It is not my table. It is the Lord's table we share in. The Lord's table is intended always to be plural. We share in it. And so, it is our table. The table where we recalibrate the reality of Christian community. A community that's grounded in Christ where we find forgiveness of sins and we see that we all stand equally in need of Jesus. Every one of us. Wherever you've come from in your stage and state of life, we all stand equal in need of Jesus. And here's the other good news. We all have equal access to the lavish grace of a good, good Father through Christ. Amen? So this is the place where the community of faith finds its roots. What do we call it? We call it communion, which means common union. Our roots are in Christ. It is Christ who makes this community the community of God. It is Christ who builds this community into what he wants it to be. And it is Christ who invites us into the gift of his community, both in communion with him and relationship with him and with one another. So it is here that we partake of the gifts of God for the people of God. Here we all stand the same at the foot of the cross together. And we do this, we do this as a less than ideal community. But we do this at a, as a beautiful resistance, a countercultural presence that fights against the prevailing narrative of an individualized existence as we stand together in Christ. As the saying goes, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And each one of us have it all. So let us come to this table that is only truly realized in the most basic act of community, a shared meal. We share in the meal that nourishes our souls because it roots us in the Christ, the God, who gave all so that we might have all of his grace and goodness for us. That's what we're doing today. Thanks be to God. <laughs>